Good day, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Dialogue Over Division. Today, we welcome a distinguished figure in modern Canadian politics, the Honourable Brian Peckford. Uh, Mr. Peckford remains an enduring symbol of resilience and unwavering commitment to public service. As the youngest premier in Newfoundland and Labrador's history, he made an indelible impact on the management of natural resources, particularly in the fields of offshore oil, fisheries, and hydroelectric projects. Not just a politician, but a passionate advocate for Newfoundland, he took on the federal government and wrestled concessions to secure a brighter future for his people. Born to a working-class family, Mr. Peckford's rise to the highest seat in provincial government reflects an extraordinary dedication to the principle of democracy and social justice. He holds the unique and distinguished title of being the last living signatory of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Beyond his legislative milestones, Mr. Peckford's legacy is enriched by his continued commitment to education and civic awareness. Even after leaving the political arena, he has remained a dedicated educator, impartial, essential, imparting essential knowledge to Canadians about their civic rights and responsibilities, as well as the intricacies of democratic governance. I am pleased to have Mr. Peckford on Dialogue Over Division today, where we will discuss some of the challenges he faced and how he overcame them during his time in office, and how we can overcome such challenges in this time of suppressed public debate and a very divisive time. So thank you, Mr. Peckford, for having for being on the show today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Well, and we heard your introduction. What an incredible story you have. And before we get into the uh, meat and potatoes of everything, can you just give me and everyone listening a little bit more about what inspired you to pursue a career in politics and how did you even get started in that? <laughs> if you can remember. <laughs> yes. Um, it really goes back to very early as a boy, um, as a, a kid at school. And... Um, one of the things that struck me when I was in grade two or three or four was the fact that now and then I would see a person in authority, usually a teacher, act a certain way to one student and act a different way to another student. Or, at recess time, seeing a big boy harass a smaller boy and uh, very early on I learned or thought I understood the word fair f-a-i-r and it was I quickly realized that there was a lot of unfairness around and people were being treated the same as other people in like circumstances and I couldn't understand that so very early on, I was a, a student who well, became very familiar with fairness and unfairness. And all through my schooling, I think, uh, I saw more and more of that. And, then, and when I graduated from high school, as a matter of fact, in, in my last year in high school, um, 
we didn't have a student council or anything then. And I agitated for a student council and had the first student council in that school, mm-hmm. for example. And it was primarily because I thought the students needed to get together and have a voice. Um, because there seemed to be some irregularities as related to how the marking of the various subjects was going how the teachers were teaching. We had a teacher who happened to be principal of the school who was teaching us algebra. We used to have our math separate, algebra, trigonometry, and geometry. And he was teaching us algebra, and there was 42 in the class, final year of high school in rural Newfoundland. And at Christmas time, in a Christmas exam, only three out of 42 achieved a 50% or more Uh, Now, that is quite unusual, and I actually challenged the teacher, because I said, this doesn't happen, I've never ever seen this happen before, and it was him that had to agree to a student council later, his teacher, which he reluctantly did, because it became obvious that the students were eager to have it. and then I had, a, the last year in high school, I had a really, really good teacher, the only real teacher I had for all my schooling, except for um, the very early years when um, my family uh, moved to a community. We were um, of the Protestant Christian faith, and the whole community was a Roman Catholic Christian faith community. And so we went to a convent school from the Mercy Sisters, and they were unbelievably great teachers. So the Mercy teachers early on, who, by the way, practiced great fairness, and my teacher, secular teacher, if you will, in my last year of high school, who taught me and many in that class to think for yourself, to examine the evidence, uh, to trust nobody's particular opinion, examine it, and seek out what you think is the proper truth to that particular thing. So I guess um, that briefly, and then I went to university and encountered more and more unfairness. I ran for student council and became student counselor, became part of the debating society, uh, and so on. So. I guess from a very early age, for whatever reason, it triggered it triggered me this business of human behavior and how some people in authority were treating people differently when they should be treated the same. Yeah. So I guess that's where it comes from. Something um, I don't know why, but that's the way it evolved for me. And then, of course, once I got out uh, and graduated from high school and then graduated from university and became a high school teacher in rural Newfoundland, I was confronted with an awful lot of uh, unfairness that's being practiced then by the Smallwood administration, which was the first administration after Confederation in Newfoundland. And it was as a result then of the fairness that I saw in that particular situation that I ran for politics. Really? So interesting to hear um, with high school, very similar. 
I was always interested in student politics and things like that. But then the experience that I think led me to become a lawyer was uh, my mom, who was born in Poland, and English isn't her first language, got three uh, traffic violations. And so she had a date in court. And I said, I'll go with you, mom, so I could help explain uh, English and help you out with that. And I went to court with her and it was so uncomfortable to be there and it felt very unfair like you're saying and I was just like I don't like this feeling I don't understand what's going on I don't know if we're being taken advantage of he just kind of waved his hand and said pay for half and you'll be done and we're both like but did we do something wrong like are we supposed to feel so uncomfortable here so that was kind of why I went into law school and then when people asked me how I got involved in this stuff and with the convoy and representing those people and the COVID mandates, I just felt, you know, something just doesn't feel right. And I felt like I had to help. And that was about as as complicated as it was at the time. So it's really interesting to hear, like you said, to just had it from a young age. It's, it's in you to help people, I think, especially when you see unfairness or vulnerable people being taken advantage of. So. Yeah. Really interesting. And so, you know, we're in such a weird time, and I'm sure we could talk for hours about everything. But uh, what I'm trying to really focus on on this podcast is helping Canadians and people all around the world, I guess, understand how important it is to be civically engaged and how that's basically required for a democracy to be healthy. And I know you talk about this a lot, and that's why I was really excited to chat with you about this. But can you remind people how important it is for them to be actively engaged with their government officials? That's one part. And then the second part, especially in, in this time, how what is the most effective way of doing so, in your, in your opinion? Yes. Um, I, I, I really could. Well, let me just start by, by responding to, to your particular circumstance and how you got into law and mm -hmm. uh, of your Polish ancestry. When a person tells me they have a Polish ancestry, the first thing comes to mind for me is Joseph Conrad. Mm -hmm. And I've always respected anybody who came from Poland or had a Polish connection because I had read the works of Joseph Conrad and he is one of my most favorite novelists. And so I, I must say that right off. Because um, anybody who has not read Conrad should begin reading, talking about a person who didn't only knew Polish and then learned English and has become one of the great English novelists. I mean, it's quite quite a feat. Uh, to get back to your and and to try to make the best use of this time, one of the. Uh, problems with democracy is that once it is attained in some reasonable form, people think mistakenly that it somehow can just run on its own. Yeah. And they lose in under in they lose the idea that this democracy is only as good as the last citizen participating in its ongoing activity. In other words, the citizen being involved, 
as it relates to their municipal council, as it relates to the provincial government, and as it relates to their federal government. And so I always make the point in my speeches of saying a, uh, a democracy is only as healthy as the, the level of civic engagement. If there's a low level of civic engagement, in other words, if a political party uh, can get uh, somebody elected to be their candidate in the riding, provincially or federally, uh, with uh, just a couple of hundred people out of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands in that riding, that demonstrates uh, that that's not an extremely healthy situation to be in. All these political parties who are registered to be uh, to run in elections um, should be filled with people who are very active and who support the program of that particular party and get out and participate in having their candidate um, nominated and then elected to that particular riding. And the most important thing then is for, after they're elected, for the people of that constituency to insist upon ongoing meetings with that MLA or MP in between elections, just not yeah. an election. I guess it's like Christians talking about you know, going to church is what happens not only on a Sunday, but it happens what happens from one Sunday to the next Sunday, and whether you're practicing your Christianity, not just on the day that you go to church, but all through the week. Yes. And uh, I guess politics is something like that. You must practice it every day. And therefore, and a lot of people in the uh, live uh, um, speeches that I've given in small communities, uh, when I say that, and afterwards, so many people come up to me and say, I never thought of that. You know, and I say to them, if you got together, uh, and not a lot in a given community, the majority or a lot of people in the community got together and wrote to MLA and say, we would like to meet with you every, right, three times or four times a year in our community. You're representing us in the legislature or in the Parliament of Canada. And we want to talk to you about what you have done during the period that you're our representative. That they would have great difficulty not arranging to make sure that that happen. And that therefore keeps the accountability of your elected representative very alive and well. Without that, then the accountability uh, falls off and the elected people tend to think that they can just go ahead on their own and inform everybody of what happens after the decisions are all made, before they individual citizens had a chance to have input. So from my perspective, the key to um, a healthy democracy is for the citizens to be engaged constantly in their provincial and federal systems of government by being involved with some political party and then afterwards to be involved in ensuring that whoever gets elected that they stay in touch with the communities in their constituency so that the input can be ongoing on a real basis and just not by telephone or or some other um, media platform. I think it's extremely important for there to be that personal interaction between the citizens or voters and that elected representative.
And I would add on a local level as well, which I think you and were... And on you, a municipal level as well, yeah. absolutely. And that's one thing I think a lot of times we forget about. And I, I did this one survey, I got, I think, 3,000 uh, responses, and it was which level of government are you most involved with or keep an eye on? And by far the majority was federal, second provincial and then last was municipal and it same if you look at the voting statistics how many people go vote and this is something i'm trying to reinforce more and more is on a local level it's a lot easier to affect change to organize the communities like you're talking about uh, and the bureaucracy obviously is a lot smaller but we go and try to you know, engage on, and especially in Canada, in this huge country we're in, like you're out on the one side of Canada and Ottawa's almost like a whole day trip away from you. So it's a, it's a very interesting and unique uh, geography and, and atmosphere we have. And I just wrote down three points, even from the converse, from what you mentioned. One thing is, I've seen this, I think this is what's happened in Canada for a while, though, is that Canadians are pretty apathetic. We're polite and apathetic in terms of politics. And I'm wondering, is that what you saw when you started in politics? Or is that something that's kind of deteriorated? It's always been the same. What are your thoughts? I think it's become worse. I think it's deteriorated more over time since I was involved. My first and uh, active involvement in provincial politics was in the fall of 1971. Okay, so we're talking about 30 plus uh, 20, over 50 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Actively yeah. involved. And so, I, and I've, I've uh, worked and traveled all across the country, including the three territories, uh, the yeah. 10 provinces and the three. So I am quite familiar with the nature of the thing. And it changes very little from province to province, territory to territory, in the level of activity or lack thereof. And there has been a decided uh, um, reduction in the amount of, uh, um, or in the increase in apathy towards uh, the, the, the those who rule or those who are elected. And I think that that's extremely sad. And a lot of that um, can be brought back to the point that um, our school systems, there is no civic, uh, there's no uh, subject called civics. And in proposals that I put forward, I have proposed to the authorities that all public schools in Canada should be, should be mandatory to have a, a subject called civics, in which the primary focus would be on understanding our nation and how it's governed through municipal Provincial and federal. I actually did that myself as a as a teacher. Brought it in, even though it wasn't in the school. Went to the principal and got approval to begin teaching about our country and how it is governed uh, to a grade eight class. Uh, the principal and the teachers sort of agreed. Oh, how, how could they not? I was going to do it. They didn't need to do anything for me. Only agree that I could do it uh, within the school building. And I have a classroom. And when I suggested that I would do it at the last class on Friday, when all the kids are dying to get out for the weekend, uh, they all laughed and said, well, nobody will turn up. The kids will just leave. This is going to be voluntary. right?" So I'm going to put this on. I'm going to tell the kids it's going to be available to them. There's only one grade eight class. 
And uh, so, uh, you know, I wanted them to stay for this extra period. And I got it all arranged with the bus drivers and so on, that the kids who were from out of town would not lose their bus or anything like that. So I had all the little logistics worked out. There was never a person absent from that class who had been in the previous classes all that day for the mm -hmm. rest of that year that I had that course on. So the kids were interested. It had nothing to do with Friday or Monday or Tuesday. Kids are genuinely interested and want to learn. And so, uh, but that course went, of course, when I left and went into politics. But it, it demonstrated to me and still is to this very day that uh, it, p kids are, and, and people generally are interested uh, in how they are being government and participating once they understand. It's something like what's happened, uh, the, uh, the teaching and so on, and it's become so professional. It's like Canadians' attitude towards doctors, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Because they would use big words that they never heard of before, big phrases, big ideas, so-called big ideas. And you felt inferior because you didn't know. Yeah what they were saying half the time and you were scared to ask the question yes. what do you mean by psychoanalysis what do you mean by that term you would just just take the prescription you didn't understand it you'd bring it to the pharmacist and get it filled and you would take whatever it was they told you to take whether it was good for you bad for you without any questions being asked uh, education became like that uh, and so when there was teacher uh, pupil uh, interactions um, when you had that night when parents came by to talk about their children, teachers very often spoke in a manner and the parents didn't know what they were talking about. Only half of them. So we've lost that kind of uh, I interaction, it seems to me. And therefore, that the, the participation uh, in um, vibrant democratic activity has diminished because most of the people were did not understand what was going on and were afraid to ask. I you know that's something that has come out clearer and clearer in the last two, three years that I didn't anticipate seeing is how little Canadians understand their legal rights uh, civic rights and responsibilities and their political system. And, you know, that's the reason I started uh, this podcast originally. And then I started Empowered Canadians because I want to help Canadians understand and empower them to be involved in the system and be involved in effectively participating. Because I think a lot of Canadians, this is at least what I've come to realize, a lot of the apathy is they don't want to look silly. And that's what you kind of mentioned, too, is they don't understand what the teacher is saying so that, or the doctor is saying, so they just kind of nod and move move on and with democracy we just can't do that it it is underlying everything in our daily lives and we just can't nod and move on we have to understand have at least a basic understanding so i've started mr peckford uh for adults a civics class which i'm gonna start in october because and it's going to be very like it's going to be great eight civics really like a refresher a reconnection to to canada 
And the more I've been thinking that today is the first day of Tamara Leach and Chris Barber's trial and uh, Mr. Peckford and I were sitting um, at a conference room when the Emergencies Act was declared, but I think you and I both will appreciate and understand when we were there, a lot of people were there participating and trying to be involved, maybe for the first time in their entire lives, in being an active citizens, being engaged in their democracy, asking the government to be held to account. And then we're, we end up with this, whatever this is. I think we're still trying to figure that out in Canada and through these trials, we're going to hear this out. But that's something too, a lot of what I learned and experienced over uh, the Freedom Convoy, the whole MOU, this ended, I didn't understand or I didn't appreciate this until a bit later is, you know, as lawyers, we knew that that was you know, a piece of paper that's not doing anything for anybody to weaponize the, a piece of paper that was a letter to the governor general with signatures that that was a means of overthrowing the government. It shows how little Canadians know about their how the, the systems work. And to the credit of the federal court judge, he did say that. He's like, we're not talking about the MOU. That's a lack of education and understanding of the Constitution. And I was like, okay, great. Like, where was that for two years? So anyway, I just thought that maybe we could talk about that a little bit, how that, how you viewed that. Um, did you see the Freedom Convoy coming given like the, what was going on in the country and the lack of um, accountability. Yeah, I, yeah. I didn't see it coming, but, uh, you know, in talking to uh, people in our, my local area and so on, there was this minority of people who were getting quite agitated about what was happening in the country. Um, just let me uh, um, sidelight a little bit. Um, to, to demonstrate the level of, of lack of uh, appreciation for how we are governed, uh, I had the opportunity when this all happened over the last few years to be asked by groups of MLAs uh, from the Maritime, right from the Atlantic provinces through to Alberta, to speak to them in this mode by Zoom or some other platform like that, uh, to talk to them about the Charter Rights and Freedoms. I found out. I think quite likely 100% of all the MLAs with whom I engaged to explain about it had never ever read the Charter of Rights and Freedom. These are elected people who provincial legislatures read across the country. Who are held, not, and, held by the Charter. And they're the only ones that have to abide by the Charter by definition. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it was quite startling in Alberta, where you're talking from right now. I forget how many were in on that call. It was, I think, 12 or 15 MLAs, all of whom admitted that they had not uh, read the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Some were, were quite um, vague about what it was and what it represented, for example. In other words, whatever um, training goes on for a new MLA in the legislatures, it's pretty, pretty sparse. Mm -hmm. Because some of these uh, elected MLAs have been elected for some time, and they still didn't know anything about the Charter Rights and Freedoms. Um, so the level, and I find that right up to today, I've had two or three encounters today, which are so disappointing after three years, from people 
whom I've been talking to for three years, off and on for three years, and they still don't understand how our system operates. And yeah. it's just so sad, just so sad, so sad. And um, so there's a huge, a lot of work to be done. But I'm so glad to hear you were beginning uh, that, uh, because that that's needed all across the country. Somebody to pick up the cudgel and start to um, engage Canadians in understanding uh, what are the documents under which they are being governed and what are their rights and freedoms. Yeah, I, I just feel it's... Like, we could take on these core challenges. We can have the largest, most successful protest in Canadian history. But if people still don't understand, and I, I remember when I was in Ottawa, and we yeah. were negotiating with truckers on that very contentious corner. Not negotiating. I was asking, we had asked them to move to Wellington Street, which was a municipal road, just like the one they were on. But they were literally blocking traffic, and, and that was an issue that, the the local police and city wanted resolved and so i was the, out there on the corner talking to maybe a hundred truckers in the cold winter at, like asking them to move over and then someone has this bright idea uh, to decimate the inf because it's in front of the parliament that's a federal that's federal land and they will be charged with a federal criminal charge and i'm just like what where did that come from who said that that is false information that is completely incorrect so again like there's only so much you can do and people don't understand the basics that municipal law is what is going like who who's going to clear the traffic in front of the parliament it's going to be the local authorities so it was just a lot of that made me realize that what we need to do is just start with the basics like abcs of civics and politics and structure and legal systems so yeah and, right down to, and don't assume that people know anything you yes have to go on to the assumption that you're starting from <laughs> zero not from five out of 50 or 10 you're starting yes. from zero and and then start to do your definitions and then build it up from there Yes, and and I do hope to do it that way, and I hope to make it engaging. I've said maybe a little bit uh, not politically correct, but I'm trying to make politics sexy so that people get engaged and want to talk about it because I think that also leads to apathy. If it's boring and and nobody's, you know, it's not enticing, then nobody wants to get involved. But yeah. the other problem that I did want to bring up too is, you know, when... You, we, you did mention a little bit about how being in contact with elected officials. What I've heard a lot of about, and it really disappoints me, is when constituents reach out to their elected officials and they get no response or just canned responses. What's going on with that? Do you think that that's at the same level? Is it worse? Because I think you've experienced the same thing too, haven't you, with yes, your court? No, no it's, it's 10 times worse now than ever was. Uh, uh, years ago, uh, even since I've been out of active politics or elected politics myself, but involved in public policy issues, you could get an answer back from uh, but uh, an MLA or an MP. But now you'll wait weeks and sometimes months. I waited months to get an answer back from my MP and months from my MLA. Suddenly the mail was lost or some other excuse was used. The other thing that they're doing is that they're using their offices and the people 
that they have working for them that we're also paying for, administrators in their office, to act as an MLA for them. And therefore, uh, you know, the MLA doesn't feel obligated and the citizen accepts that uh, reaction, right? Okay, I'll deal with the secretary, I'll deal with a so-called assistant, and I don't have to talk to my MLA. Well, that's unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that that is what is happening. And I actually uh, wrote the Minister of Health in Ottawa and uh, told him who I was, that I had been involved. Matter of fact, I had been involved with the the Minister of Health, uh, Ministry of Health and the Public Health Agency because I conducted an inquiry for the federal government. And this was after I had conducted inquiries. I'm quite familiar with the Public Health Agency and the Department of Health in Ottawa. And I was trying to um, get um, some people who were involved in the federal government uh, who were involved in administering the Canada Health Act, under which the government of Canada provides money to the provinces under certain conditions. And what was the federal government doing to ensure that these conditions were met? Mm-hmm. Well, I started with my local health board through then the health minister, by the way, none of whom would answer. I'd always get an answer back from somebody else, either a deputy minister would, uh, the ministers asked me to respond on your behalf. Now, the, here's where the thing has really gotten that, uh, that um, the, the uh, politicians have really done something that is very, very wrong. What usually happened years ago was that the deputy minister, an assistant deputy minister or chief of staff or whoever, whatever the issue was, would sit, the letter, the letter would come in and it had to be answered, okay, from a constituent, okay. And the proper minister or whatever. So I'm the minister and it comes to me. It might have gone to the premier or whatever, but it's a health issue. And I have to answer as the minister because I'm the person who's accountable, not the deputy minister. Deputy yeah. minister wasn't elected. I was elected. But the deputy minister and assistant deputy minister can help prepare a reply. But my signature, that means accountability then if my signature goes on it. But if the deputy minister's signature goes on it, or the ADM, or somebody else, the minister's off the hook. I didn't answer was somebody else. And that's how our democracy and our accountability has been diluted over time. And to bring this to the final conclusion on the Ministry of Health in Ottawa, you will not guess, after a number of months, who I got an answer from. A division of the Department of Health with no names on it, just an answer from a division of the Department of Health in Ottawa. No names. Wow. Yeah, definitely no accountability there. So do you have thoughts on how we can get those responses? Do you have thoughts well, that's, about that? that's what I'm saying, that therefore, um, there, at some point in the whole business of retraining or training for the first time Canadians about our politics. We have to emphasize that whole business of accountability. And so when I say to um, citizens right here, where I live right now, uh, that no, we need an answer back from the councillor or from the Mm -hmm. mayor, not from the chief administrative officer, because the chief administrative officer reports to the mayor. The mayor reports to me. 
Yes. So we've got to get those reporting systems back yeah. in place and to ensure that the answer and the meetings are with those elected people. They can have other people around with them who are advisors and who will help them and so on. But the accountability cannot be transferred to yeah. the appointed people that must remain with the elected. That is really sometimes very difficult to explain to people, but it is at the core of real democracy and therefore accountability. Yep. And I like how you said it is the chief of staff is accountable to the mayor or whoever, and the mayor, who is he accountable? Of course, the citizen. So that's He that was the one who, who was elected yes. by the citizens. And yeah. yes, sure, you need other people who assist you. But at the end of the day, it is the mayor and the councillor's signature that should be going out to, out to the letter. So the accountability remains. Right. No, 100%. So one thing I did want to talk about a little bit today, or I, I wanted to get a little bit of history from you, is you took the federal government to court as well, right? So if you could give me a little bit of uh, background on that and how what happened there? Why were you, how did you take the federal government to court? Well, when I got involved with uh, the whole freedom movement, if you will, and saw what was happening in our country and how... Uh, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which I was involved in helping to create, uh, was being uh, violated. Um, and I was out speaking to people on a regular basis, trying to explain the Charter and what was happening to a lot of our uh, rights and freedoms under the Charter. I woke up one morning uh, and that old phrase started to hit me. Um, you're talking a really good talk, and you're explaining this, and this is your eighth or tenth or you know fifteenth speech you gave before hundreds of people. Uh, at some point, somebody's going to ask, oh, "Well, can you, you're you're talking? Can you you're talking a great talk? Can you walk? You know, like, can you walk? What are you actually doing about it? Um, even though, so I said, you know." I've got to do something with this. And then I began to think about what would be most uh, understandable to people. Uh, would it be uh, something in the province through one of their mandates or lockdowns and blah, blah. And of course, the federal government had then brought in this travel mandate. Mm -hmm. And that applied to all Canadians who are going to be traveling. And we know what the charter says about that. We're supposed to be able to move across your country uh, as you see fit. And so I thought that the best approach would be uh, to initiate an action against the government of Canada as related to the travel mandate that they were bringing in, re restricting Canadians from moving, which was in violation of the charter. Mm -hmm. At that time, that I got in touch with the Justice Centre, and they were talking the same kind of thing, and so it sort of came together quickly uh, that we would, uh, with other Canadians, uh, initiate an action indicating that what the government of Canada and Transport Canada was doing on behalf of the government of Canada was infringing upon people's rights of movement within the country. And so it got initiated. 
And you know now as well as I do where what happened to that and when it finally got to the federal court and then by the time it got there, of course, the travel mandate had been lifted. Now Suspend. the court was uh, able to say that uh, somehow now this 6 million Canadians who have been deprived because they were unvaccinated and therefore couldn't travel uh, is only a moot point and you're only taking up our time. So your 6 million Canadians who whose freedoms were jeopardized during a period of time in Canada's history is of no importance to anybody anymore, and therefore we'll move on. And so uh, it got the turned down by the federal court on that basis, uh, and we have appealed, and the appeal is to be heard now. The court, federal court of appeal is going to hear it on October the 11th <coughs> for three hours. Yeah. And allocated three hours for it, which I find crazy, because there are a number of um, of these actors come together, right? Mr. Bernier's case, right? Other Canadian citizens have yes. cases, but they've all come together to make it efficient, uh, because it's all on the same point. And uh, but so now uh, we have uh, three hours to appeal the federal court judge's decision before the Federal Court of Appeal, a new Federal Court of Appeal judge. And so... Yes, uh, so we'll see where that goes. But that this isn't your first time challenging the federal government in court. You did that as a premier as well, right? I think I'm the only premier that has been there three times. Um, I was there twice as related to uh, hydropower in, in uh, Labrador. Right. under an existing lease agreement between the parties involved. And there was a provision there saying that uh, the, the province still had certain rights. Got turned down in the court in the Supreme Court of Canada. And then I went to court over the uh, rights to offshore oil and gas, whether it belonged to the province or the federal government. And so, and I initiated a special legislation under the hydro thing when I lost the first hydro case when the second time under a new piece of legislation, lost that. And thirdly, lost when I tried to argue that uh, Newfoundland did not relinquish its rights to offshore oil and gas when it joined Canada in 1949. And so there you have it. So all while I was premier, almost from day one, I was involved in legal matters of national importance. Yes. Until almost. Well, and in that, in most of those or all of those, that had to do with division of powers, right? And that's something I'm recognizing Canadians are not very well versed of is what the federal <laughs> government has authority over versus the provincial government. And so you were trying to get some clarity or you wanted some more power for the province and you had you were taking the federal government to court over that and while and i i think it's good i think it's also another form of holding our government to account going to court and that's another thing i'm trying to get out through these podcasts and my messaging is that taking the government to court shouldn't be seen as a negative thing per se it's there's a reason we have courts in fact we're paying for all of them and we're paying for their lawyers so we might as well challenge these things once in a while so that's something i just wanted to maybe have like a general um yeah i, I think one of the problems i had yeah. early on yeah 
was that very thing, is that people saw it as a negative rather than a leader of a government, of a, uh, of a legitimate government under the Constitution yes. in our federal system, uh, uh, enunciating certain things which were unclear as to which level of government under the division of powers really exercised the power in this particular case, right? And and get that right. clarified. So, and also under, um, yeah, there was an existing lease that I was arguing about as well, under which the province had certain powers that overrode right. the provincial power, the federal powers. So, yes, um, the... As we get down the road and you, we, you get these civics things underway and you get those basic division of powers clarified, then one comes up to the, to the problem and the brighter minds among your class will quickly talk to you about, right, as you are quite familiar with, how some of the um, powers between the federal government and the provinces gotten blurred over the years. Yes, yeah. And yeah, it's just so interesting that you did that as a premier three times. And then while, yes, and you, you said it yourself, you weren't successful in court, but then via a negotiation after, you were able to come to some of those agreements. And there's a question about, you know, if if uh, Canadians had ensued, like yourself, the federal government, whether or not those travel bans. So there's a reason to challenge the government. It's another way of holding them to account. It's another way of gaining transparency, which is something we don't get very often either, because they have to disclose a lot of documents via the court process. So it I don't see why it's always viewed as a negative. For most people, I could see it as a negative because it's incredibly expensive to do so. Not many lawyers um, put their hand up to do it. But it's certainly something thinking that it's a bad thing to do, in my opinion. Exactly. And in the case that you, you talked about, it, you know, it's through sometimes court action that you get more information yeah. that the government was, uh, was withholding, which they shouldn't be withholding. And in the case of our of the travel ban one in the federal court, as you know, uh, the um, the uh, Department of Transport was able to uh, we were able to get out of them, and that became great news in Canada that they had no basis, no scientific basis for going ahead with this travel ban at all in their possession, and uh, this was unknown before. Mr. Wilson was very articulate at the time in interviews uh, with various, uh, especially alternate news media, who would listen to him and that interview him in explaining how we were able to get through this court process information, crucial information, yeah. that, we wouldn't, yeah. that we wouldn't have otherwise gotten and people would not be the wiser, that the federal yeah. government's department were making decisions about whether I or you or some other citizens could travel based upon our vaccination status without having the requisite scientific data to back them up. Yeah. Well, the evidence was there was no evidence. <laughs> is what you could say. <laughs> exactly. And that's shocking in exactly. itself. Yeah. It was, it was yeah. hard to digest what was going on during that time. And I, I'm going to ask one final question for the general audience here and more kind of like a wrap up. Just looking back at what we've seen and moving forward, what would you think is the most pressing issue that we have in Canada as a whole that needs to be addressed? Like, 
as soon as possible. To me, to me, it is it is for people to understand that as we speak today, our democracy has been diminished over the last three years, and we need more and more citizens. As you, we've talked about up to now in this uh, interview um, of understanding the Charter Rights and Freedoms, so that we're able to rebalance. Uh, the situation whereby individual rights and freedoms, right, find their a proper place in the picture of governing Canada. Right now, they have been significantly diminished in favor of the government, without the government yeah. being able to really prove, uh, as we say in Section 1, demonstrably justified. And what they were doing was really demonstrably justified. And so we need some many people who understand our charter rights and freedoms so we're in a better position to force the governments and the courts to acknowledge that there is that governments and public policy must be guided by evidence and not by some preconceived narrative that they have in their head that, that this is extremely important otherwise we'll never regain uh, the rights and powers that were articulated are articulated and written down in the charter. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, I I did a, a space and Keith was on the line and he gave a, like a ten minute explanation about the charter and the Oaks test and I asked everyone to give him a round of applause because I think after three years of it was charter this and charter that I think most people had no idea what yeah. was going on so I'm with you a hundred percent is that we need to start educating so people right. feel they can participate in the system they feel encouraged and um, comfortable doing so and yes. I think right now people just aren't and so they're confused and they don't know what how to participate and the so, governments have become so sophisticated yeah. with their spin doctors yes. and their and their marketing uh, people that they bamboozle yeah. a lot of ordinary people who are busy just trying to make a living yes so we have to get canadians to become more sophisticated so they don't get bamboozled excellent exactly. point so exactly. thank you for that I, like I said, we could probably do this for another more, a few more hours, but maybe we'll connect another time. But we have a few more minutes with you uh, on the subscription channel, so stay tuned for that.